Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and we are continuing our discussion on community engagement today. And we are going to take a little bit of a different spin or at least a different angle on community engagement because we typically talk about it from kind of a door knocking in person interaction between organizations and community. And so today we're shifting a little bit to focus more on research and more specifically in research evaluation. And so we're talking about culturally responsive evaluation and how it's more than just ensuring individuals have a seat at the table, play on words there from the last episode, but we're also looking at how we can center community experience into the evaluation process. And and it's expansive how that can be done. And just the same way that we discussed with Dr. Cunningham last episode, there's different ways that you can adopt these tenets and principles to ensure that community experience is represented, not just in the reporting process, but also in the way that you collect your data, the way you analyze your data. And those that know me know that I'm not the super data person, but I do like to tie the experience to individuals. And I'm, I'm the same way when it comes to policy, though I will say I'm a policy guy. I like to ensure that whatever we're proposing is tied back to an individual. And you, you can see that person's experience based on the policy that we're drafting. And today we're going to hear from Dr. LaShawn Johnson from Creighton University, who does just that. And it's really, to me, it's, I don't want to say it's innovative, though it is, in the ways that we can really ensure community is represented through the entire research process. So really excited to kick off today's episode. Dr. Johnson, you mind introducing yourself to the listeners, let them know a little bit about you? So I'm from um, Oklahoma. So I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the shadow of the um, 1921 riots. I am currently in Omaha, Nebraska, but in between there, I've lived in a few different parts of the country. So I feel like I have a really um, unique Amer- American experience in that I've lived in the Midwest and the Northeast and, and I've lived in California. So I've lived on the West Coast as well. So I'd like to ask you, which place was your favorite? I think Weather-wise, I, I loved living in Santa Barbara. It's so nice. Every day is um, not too hot, and 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 um, you can go out and be active. I think culturally, I have surprised myself by really liking Philly. I didn't think I would like living in Philly when I first moved there, but it's a big city, but not so big that you can't develop personal relationships. And there's lots of different cultures and lots of food and it's easy to get around. So really loved living in Philly when I was there. And so tell us a little bit about your educational background. What brought you to this point, you know? I had a sort of funky start. So I did my undergrad work at Wellesley College, which is a women's college in the Boston area. I was a sociology and medieval Renaissance studies major. You don't find too many of us in a program evaluation. Um, and really loved both of those areas because they let me think really deeply about stories and the role that 
stories played in changing culture, but also how they reflected back on culture. And, but I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and was strongly encouraged to consider leaning on the sociology side of things. So I ended up getting my PhD from UC Santa Barbara and um, still felt like I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I ended up actually doing two postdocs after I finished my work at UC Santa Barbara. So I did a postdoc um, at the University of Connecticut in Farmington at their medical school. And that was my first real introduction to community engaged research, doing research in African-American churches with diabetes prevention, and then also starting to do photo voice, which is a community-based participatory research method. And then I did a second postdoc at the University of Missouri in Columbia in the School of Health Professions, where I was again sort of working in the faith-based space working with the Islamic Center of Central Missouri and also working with African-American churches. And there, I think I really started to hone my um, community engagement and started to think about the culturally responsive evaluation lens, but I didn't quite know what it meant at that point, but I started to realize how important it was to get community members engaged and involved in the work. So then I ended up um, at where I am right now, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm at Creighton University. I'm a faculty in the Master of Public Health program. I'm an associate professor there. I'm also currently the assistant director of the Creighton University at Highlander Space. So the Highlander community is a live, work, learn, play community using that purpose-built community model. And that model was founded in, I think in the Atlanta area. So there's housing, there's educational opportunities, other kinds of training activities. Um, there's, it's from cradle to college education. So they're in our building, there's a community college. There's, you know, things for seniors to do. There's some senior housing that's coming up right now. So in that role, I get both to educate public health students about um, community engagement and evaluation and health disparities. But also um, in that role, I also get to work in shoulder to shoulder with community members for identifying problems and solutions and gifts and strengths in their community. So I should say that that center is actually off campus. It's not on the Creighton campus. It's a mile or so away in a neighborhood in North Omaha, which historically for Omaha is the historical African-American, African immigrant community. So we're intentionally not on our campus. We're out in the community, right smack dab in the middle of a federally qualified health center and historically black church and all you know so we're right in the middle of some of the art and some of the creation and some of the community organizing that's been so key to um supporting the african-american community over the years i want to go back to something you mentioned earlier it's so interesting mm -hmm. how we find ourselves in spaces doing the work but it doesn't have a name yet that's how mm -hmm. I feel about community engagement work. When I think back on how my career started, it was literally knocking door to door, talking to people about what did they enjoy about their neighborhood and what did they dislike and wanted to see differently. And then actually taking those that feedback and giving it to policymakers and people who had to make decisions with it. And it wasn't until my master's program, I was like, oh, that's community engagement. Like I, I thought I was just you know, mm -hmm. talking to folks. <laughs> and there's like a whole science behind it. And so I'm always intrigued when 
you know, people start off their careers and they're like passionate doing the work, but they haven't yet given it a title. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, that's one of those things. So like I said, I grew up in Oklahoma and I grew up surrounded by folks who were active in the church, the black church and active in neighborhood associations and those kinds of things. And that's just what you did, right? There wasn't a name to it. It's just, it's the price you pay for being on this planet, right? You did this work. And so when I decided to become an academic, that was so ingrained in me as a person. I, it never occurred to me that there one, weren't other academics who, you know, that was their first thing when they, they landed in a city was to figure out like, where are people? What are they talking about? Like, where do they get together? Like, what do they say? Um, and two, it didn't occur to me that I couldn't not make that part of how I, I lived as an academic, that I couldn't not be someone who was doing community engagement on, as scholarship, but oh, and or at least a, alongside my scholarship, right? So it's always been about, it's always been the way that I've thought about who I am as a sociologist, as a public health educator, as an advocate in the community was, I was in the community, I was talking to the folks, I'm side by side with them, I'm going to church with them, I'm going to Friday prayers in the mosque with them if I need to, like whatever makes the most sense for connecting with them and understanding them where they are rather than where I am, I, I, I was willing to do. But yeah, I didn't know at the time as a sociologist, you know, a bit about sort of embedding yourself in a community and doing particip- participation and events and, and doing this kind of observation or ethnography. I knew it was going beyond that, right? Because it felt like when I would read like the old school ethnographies, it's like, okay, I'm going to watch these folks like a fly on the wall. I'm not going to be engaged with them. I'm not going to say much to them or I'm going to ask some targeted questions. For me, that wasn't enough, right? Because I wanted to make a difference, right? So I had to not only ask them what was going on, but then figure out, well, how do we take what we understand now and do something with it? So like you said, going and talking to policymakers, I work in a public health sphere. So for me, it's working with providers and other folks that are part of one of the social safety net systems to say, well, okay, how do I take what I've learned now and then move it into um, training for these professionals or at least thinking about how these folks are going to be treated when they show up in these spaces. Amazing. So let's talk about kind of what brought you to today's episode, right? Okay. Really defining cultural responsiveness and culturally responsive evaluation. What, what are those? So I think, like I was saying, I work in the public health sort of health space and there's always, there's been a conversation about cultural humility, and I think folks generally know what that is. And we're talking moving past that, right? So it's not just, I read a book about this community and I know what foods they like to eat. We're way past that now. We are talking about thinking, for me, it's it centers on thinking about doing something good with evaluation, right? So we know, those of us who've been trained in program evaluation, in education or social work or public health, know the dirty little secret about evaluation. And then that is sometimes evaluation reports were used to unfairly portray communities, really misrepresent how willing they were to participate in an intervention or a program 
or just misunderstood it. Maybe it wasn't even intentional, but because those people from the community weren't involved in the way the questions were asked or were just hard to read, hard to reach populations, they just weren't even asked the questions, right? And I think in the 90s, the field of evaluation started to do some reflecting, uh, particularly as the field started to get more diverse and they said to themselves, um, are we doing more harm than good? Is, is this something that's actually helping these communities that we purport to be supporting in some of the work that we do? And the answer was no, <laughs> often. So the you know folks like Rodney Hood started to say, hey, there's a way to do this that we center the experiences and the stories of the folks most impacted by the issue that we're our programs that we're evaluating. So that's where culturally responsive evaluation started to emerge as those folks saying, how can we center and amplify the voices of the folks that were saying, okay, here's a social safety net program that's been introduced in the 80s and 90s, and it's targeted towards these underserved folks, people of color, low-income folks, rural folks. Um, there are focus, there are target, that might've been the word they would have used then. How do we focus in on making sure that it's authentic and it also rigorous, right? So when you say, well, I had a hard time reaching these folks, so I just didn't ask them why they didn't come to this or why they didn't do this. That's not a rigorous evaluation. That's lazy. That tells only part of the story. And that's how some of these misrepresentations would come out of evaluation reporting. So those of us who do culturally responsive evaluation focus on a few things. And this is, it's worded slightly differently depending on who you ask, but here's kind of the six things that we think about. One, we spend some time trying to understand the larger social, historical, cultural context of which this program or this policy or whatever we're evaluating exists in. It's not in its empty hole by itself. It's part of that community. It's part of that community's history. There's relationships. There's a reason it's there. So spending some time before you even get out there to think about the evaluation, to think about that context. I think the second thing we always think about is, is there a way to partner with the folks who are most impacted by the thing you're evaluating? So can you, can you work with organizations that serve the community? Can community members be part of the team that's designing the evaluation and participating in it? Like, how can we make sure that they're telling us if we're getting it right? And if we're designing it in a way that's going to fit the lifestyles and the language of the folks in the community. Another thing that we talk about when we talk about culturally responsive evaluation is doing some of that inner work. So really thinking about what are my biases? What are my beliefs? What, how have I been trained as an evaluator to think about uh, folks in the community? And what can I do to work on that, right? So you can have someone from that community sitting next to you the whole time but if you do focus groups and you always start with a person from that you're more familiar with as the person who answers a question, you're falling short of that, right? So you have to ask yourself like, why do I always let this person with the letters behind their name speak first as opposed to this community organizer who only has a high school diploma? So some of it is about that inner work. That's the third thing we think about is that sort of self-examination, that inner work. The fourth thing we talk about is then once we start to design an evaluation and we start to execute it, like taking moments to pause or recognize that there may be differences in power, 
sometimes not something we've done, but like how people are being assigned to a project or who's being funded the money, like really thinking about how that context starts to influence the way that we even do the work itself, right? Are there things that we can talk about? Are there separate groups we need to have? So maybe if it's employees and their boss don't need to be in a group together, right? So they need to have a separate conversation so they can speak their minds more freely. Or maybe there's differences across neighborhoods in a community. So maybe you've got to do things in those specific neighborhoods as opposed to putting them all together and they feel uncomfortable or they've got a, a history with a certain group of people that just would not make them feel like they could be themselves in the space. I think the next thing is allowing for, and I, I'm a qualitative researcher, so this is always my favorite, is thinking about stories and thinking about that lived experience as being part of the evaluation and the evaluation reporting. So not just leaning on the, these people didn't come and those people didn't come, but really talk, really, if you're teasing out the context and you're having these authentic conversations, then you also tease out these stories about what were the barriers? What were the experiences? What was going on? How do we understand it so that we can do it better, right? How can we change it to make it more accessible or make it more supportive of where people are now? You know, how can we find the, um, the place, the sweet spot that um, allows folks to be able to do it at a time that works for them and a place that works for them and also keeps them engaged. And so that's one of the things we think about is sort of thinking about those stories. And then finally, I think in the um, thinking about the principles that we have about this sort of cultural responsiveness, thinking about both language and you know, delivery, like if this is a population that's more storytelling rather than doing surveys, find a way to do it that way, right? If this is a community where they naturally organize and they have kind of a hierarchy, let's, let's make sure that that's part of the work. But also thinking about cultural responsiveness from the design to the hiring, to the materials that you use, potentially for the, um, evaluators that you partner with. So maybe that means capacity building in a community community so that you're able to work for the folks right in the community rather than bringing out outsiders. But also it's about reporting and dissemination. So making sense of the data you've collected, are there members of your team from that community? And not just uh, one person that says, oh, thumbs up, this looks okay. But are they, are they helping you make sense of the data? Are they helping you write up reports? Are they helping you think about different channels for getting this information out there, right? So not just a report that sits in a shelf and no one reads, but is, it, is there a community forum? Is there a, an opportunity at a church event? Is there some other way that you can start to get this information out there? But also, are there multiple formats of that information? So let's say you're doing this work and you've listened to them about the current context and let's say, I'm a health disparities researcher, I'm interested in health, but they've also mentioned some things going on around education. Are there ways that I can also make an additional report that maybe I had some findings about education that might be helpful and also give those to them, right? But that's about being responsive to what they need, what's going on, their lived experiences, and also making it useful for them in ways that maybe you didn't even imagine. So for me, culturally responsive evaluation is from top to bottom, of the evaluation process. Any part of the process you think of when you think about program evaluation 
there's a way to center the voices of those community members and, and like I said, potentially even capacity building so that they do it themselves. And, and you're sort of there shoulder to shoulder rather than directing it, uh, you know, top down. I really just want to drop the mic like we can all go home now. I mean, you broke it down <laughs> so, so well. I think the part that really takes it to the next level for me is really the responsiveness, right? And mm -hmm. I think for so long, we've missed out on great collaborative opportunities because we, mm -hmm. we silo the work, right? You know, we, do mm -hmm. we go on to the next grant and there's so many like systems change opportunities that we could have if, you know, like you mentioned, share with education or we share with transportation. Like we can really transform the way people experience communities if we take the time to like share what we found. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think one of the places where people get stuck. They, um, when I, I often do workshops with folks trying to introduce them to a culturally responsive evaluation and they'll get really excited and like, oh, we can add this person to our team or, or we'll make sure that we translate this into Spanish which, you know, is, it's okay, but not good enough. But they often sort of stop short of saying, you know, let's think creatively about these ongoing community relationships we can, we can have. Like, are there ways that we can make this useful for more than one thing? Yes, I have a grant that's about this thing, but it couldn't hurt to add a few more questions because the community members have said, we also are really interested in transportation, you know, finding a way to join some of your interest in some of their interests. So then when you come out at the end, you've responded to your need and also their need. So I can give you an example, James. When I lived in Missouri, I'm a cancer researcher and I, you know, I'm, you know, this is what I'm gonna do. This is my life. This is, you know, I was gung-ho about it. And I had this grant from a major organization to do some uh, faith-based work in churches around cancer with African-American women. And again, this is before I knew about culturally responsive evaluation, but I knew I needed to sit down with these churches and figure out like, what's going on? What do you know? What do you normally do? And I asked very casually to a few folks like, you know, cancer is really important, right? And they said, well, um, yeah, you know, you're a cancer researcher. So yeah, that's important. I said, no, 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 no. What's, what's really important? And cancer came like four or five on the list of things. And what was number one? It was diabetes. And so I said, oh, okay, that's not what my grants is for. <laughs> but I stepped back and, you know, this is where the cultural humility part comes in. And I said, okay, uh, I need these folks to work with me. They are, they are the most important part of this project. I'm not, I'm, yes, I have the money, but their voices and their stories are most important. What do I do? And I went back with, to them and I said, and I, and I chatted a little bit with the funder and the solution we came up with is we still did some of our breast health education, but we partnered with the diabetes center and some nutritionists. So a lot of the suggestions that you make for healthy eating to prevent cancer are also, also diabetes friendly foods, right? So we could open it up to other folks and talk about, yes, I, I, you know, I'm a cancer researcher, but I'm here to serve you in lots of different ways. And I've listened, let's work together to think about the things that uh, if you have a diabetic family member, what they would need. And that was a humbling and sometimes tough experience to go through, but I learned so much about listening, not just listening for what I wanted to hear, but listening for what was happening in the context. 
And so from that point, I was sold on culturally responsive evaluation, culturally responsive research, participatory research, because they started helping me once they realized I was all in and I was going to do some of this diabetes stuff, they actually started helping me write some of the curriculum because they were so involved. They said, okay, if you're gonna meet us here, we will help you figure this out. So they actually played a role in writing some of the things that ended up being the curriculum that we use with the woman. Each month we would have um, some faith-based things we would do and also some physical health things that we would do. And they were integral to doing that. And it's, I think it's only because I said, okay, I'm gonna stop. I see that diabetes is, is more important to you. You understand the importance of cancer, but you're understanding that diabetes is a thing that you see every day. And I think that I give that example because it's one, me not doing things perfectly, but learning. But two, it shows you the power of if folks feel like they are centered in your evaluation, if they are centered in your research, they will work with you. They will tell, you know, if they feel like their voices and their stories are why you're there, they will start to work with you because that's the, one of the other things that people get nervous about. They say, well, I've never done this before or I'm white or I'm, I'm from a rural area. Maybe they won't think I can help them. But if you take that time to do that active listening and responding, It'll take some time, it's still some work. I'm not gonna say you just show up and say, hey, I'm listening and now, now you should work with me. But I have found that if you're willing to put in that work and work with them and think about ways in which you can be creative to um, co-create something that's gonna be helpful for the community, even when you do leave, because that's the other thing about evaluation. We're sometimes there, we sometimes have to parachute in for a while and then leave again. But if you're there saying, I'm gonna co-create something with you that can have legs, even if I'm not here. I, I find that folks start to work with you and they start to ask you lots of questions and they, you know, they still have some doubts and questions, but they um, also start to think about ways in which they can work with you. And I, that has been for me the most rewarding thing when someone says, okay, I'll help you think about these interview questions or, or what is it that you think you've been hearing from people? Let me take a look at it or tell me what you think, you know, because I'm going to tell you, you know, not if you're right or wrong, but if you're getting close to what sounds like what I have been hearing in the community, because I know not everybody talked to you, but so I can tell you a little bit about what I've been hearing. Now, I think we've talked about what happens when priorities aren't necessarily in line with funding or, you know, the mm -hmm. community wants to go in a different direction. But could you speak to how we overcome mistrust of the community with academic institutions or other organizations? We are always working through that in my center. And I and I don't, I wish I had all of the answers here, but some of it is just putting in the sweat, putting in the work. One of the things that I learned early on in my like formal evaluation training, once I officially started saying, okay, this is my work, is one of my mentors, Nora Johnson, um, that was my first evaluation project. I was working with her. And one of the things I re was really struck by was how many people from the community she hired to do the data collection and, and the evaluation work itself. And when I started asking her a bit about that, I was like, oh, wow, there's all kinds of folks on this project. She said that when she proposed and pitched the project to the community partners, that was an essential part of it. That's how she earned the trust. She started saying, let's talk about the assets in your community. Let's talk about 
the strengths, the ways that people are creative, the ways that people organize. And it was with those kinds of conversations when she kept coming back and talking and asking those questions, that's where I think she said she started to see the change. And so I use that a lot in my own work, really thinking about um, who's already out there doing some of this. You know, I mean, I've appreciated all of the degrees that I've gotten in my life, but I also understand that sometimes doing this work doesn't need that degree. It needs this passion and this deep understanding, this rich connection to the folks that we're interested in working with. And sometimes that understanding and connection comes from folks who are living the issue that we're, we're trying to address. And so when I, I was an Annie Casey lead fellow several years ago and my mentor, Paul Elam, that's part of his work too. He's always really trying to connect with um, community members and making them an important part of how the story gets told about a community that he's working with. So that really started to reinforce it. Once I got into it and started working with him, I started to see examples of really successful evaluation reports that had this element of community members being at the lead at forming the questions and at the lead of doing the data analysis, you know, right there at, at the table when they were doing the reporting out about what they found and what this means next, right? Um, so yeah, that to me is the answer is, is really getting in there shoulder to shoulder, really trying to demonstrate your willingness to listen and learn, uh, really stepping back and letting folks in the community take charge of meetings at times just so they can explain to you what, what's gonna be important to them. And they will tell you what you need to do to earn their trust if you let them. And so it's not always easy because sometimes you get a little bit of a bruised ego, especially if you work at an, an institution that you weren't responsible for some of the bad things that happened in the past to the folks but you have to still sit there and listen and not be defensive and, and, and learn from it, you know? And, and I, th I think all of us uh, folks who are from uh, historically underrepresented communities that are now in academia, I've had that moment where someone said, well, this thing happened to me or my cousin or my grandmother, and you may have nothing to do with that, but you've got to learn from it and learn how it makes them feel and learn how they feel when they walk in those doors of your office, they're remembering and reliving that moment. And so you take those moments and you say to yourself, okay, how can we make this a place that feels better for you? And that often that means coming to them and say, okay, we're not gonna do any of the meetings at our academic institution, even though it's nice and shiny and the Wi-Fi works really well, we're gonna go where you are and where is that place? Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you feel most empowered? Where do you feel most connected to other people? And that's hard sometimes. And sometimes we have to explain to our bosses or our mentors why we don't want to use this fancy facility that the university has on their website. But I overwhelmingly find that I never regret going to those places, even if I'm frustrated with, like I said, the Wi-Fi or the doors noisy or whatever's going or someone's dog is there. I still am overwhelmingly grateful to be in that space. So those are the things I would say to think about. Quick shout out to Paul Elam. I think that's how yeah. we- I think so, I know. I, I, I was pretty sure that was how we got connected. So yeah. yes, get up Paul, yes. 
so I think you you started talking about this and I want to get a little bit more explicit about it, but how do you facilitate the learning between community evaluators? Because the results of any study are just as important to both parties. So how do you intentionally make sure that community has a sense of ownership to whatever product may come from your evaluation? I think that's that's okay. that's um that's a good question. So part of it is some of that work is done for you if they're part of the process from the beginning. When we, if we go back to those core principles of culturally responsive evaluation in that their, their stories are the priority and they are part of the team, hopefully some of that ownership hopefully has started at the start of the project, right? So they're there to the bitter end because they've been employed by the project or they've been on an advisory board for the project or you've brought them in to help you do some meaning making around your first pass of the data analysis. So that's one thing I would say. I would also say in those early parts of the evaluation before you get started, if you're started to identify events or other places where that sharing of the data and the results might be good places to do it, right? So let's say they have a couple of yearly events that happen where people have booths or they have speakers. Like I often think about, well, hey, can we think about, let's, so we, let's say our, our timeline is like a year out, we're gonna be doing some presentations. What would be happening in August of 2021, right? Where would you be? What would the community be working on? And so I often find that as if I'm working with community members and we're all kind of working on this goal, like my goal might be, okay, I need to get these publications out, but their goal might be, okay, we've got members of the community that have been here and we're gonna give them opportunities to do some of the presentations in the community. They're, you know, we're gonna use our capital as academics to get them a seat at the table to have a conversation with a politician or someone that they might not have been able to get on their own. Although I think a number of these communities can do that on their own and don't need us to do it. But if for some reason they think they can't, then, you know, hey, we're happy to make sure that that's part of the work that we do. We're also, I also now increasingly am using arts-based uh, evaluation methods so that there's some art creation that happens while we're doing our evaluation. And so often there's a lot of events where it's probably not appropriate to do sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna read this 10 page report to you uh, while you're having fun at this carnival. But there's often spaces where arts or art some kind of art representation is happening. And so I also look for those things. So I'm currently, as a researcher, doing a poetic transcription project where I'm working with a colleague of mine um, to take, we're doing some focus groups and we're gonna turn them into poems, like some of the, so finding some of the themes. And then we're asking African-American creatives to read them aloud, um, prob at this point because of COVID, probably online. But we were hoping to do it in person, but there are lots of opportunities where there's spoken word or other events in the community where you can say, we're sharing some of our findings. This is the voice of your community and we're sharing it with you, right? And it's accessible. And of course we'll write a traditional report as well, but we've been already sort of brainstorming about places where we can have these videos shown or, or people can perform them. So I'm more and more lately looking for those artsy ways to represent some of our data and um, either community members or maybe someone from 
the community that's a professional artist in some way, you know, you know, drawing or doing something. And those are little ways that you can at least introduce some of the, the process and the data collection with folks. And if they want to take a deeper dive, then you can meet with them or give them a short report about it. But for me, knowing that that's a possibility often give, keeps folks engaged, that they know that they have some way that they can offer their talents artistically or something else is another way that I, I try to do it. Can you do me a favor and make sure I get the invitation to the spoken word? I'm really into poetry. <laughs> I'm no good at it. I mean, I write, but I'm, well, I'm wait, no, we, maybe we could have. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's I'm I'm gonna see how it goes because this is the first time I've done it this way. So I'm, you know, it's a little bit of like <laughs> Fair enough. But it's I but I, I'm just super excited about doing it. I um so I mentioned Nora uh, Johnson that I worked with. One of the projects I worked with her with is we did an arts-based evaluation with kids who were system engaged in juvenile justice and foster care. And we let the kids make the art themselves. So we gave them like an hour or so and they could do spoken word or drawing or poetry or, and it was amazing to hear how they reflected on their experiences and their time with the system. And after that, I was sold. And I was already doing things like photo voice, where you give people cameras and have them reflect on things. And so I had already been doing some of that, but to do spoken word and poetry, I hadn't ever done that because it's scary. And I, you know, I like, I, I like to pretend that I'm a poet, but I don't know that I, I, I'm, I'm very good at it yet. But so after that, I was totally sold on doing that as a method. And I just didn't find a project that fit it. And this seemed to fit. So we're doing it with this one. Um, so I'm super excited about it. I'm excited for you. <laughs> and so this, this wouldn't be equity matters, right? If I didn't ask, how is culturally responsible evaluation being used to address disparities and inequities? So I think culturally responsive evaluation, um, there are, there are a number of folks that are in the ACE network and the culturally responsive evaluation community um that have been doing this work in different settings so i think of my colleague christine andrews who's at child trends and she has really pushed forward the culturally responsive evaluation work around educational disparities really highlighting and centering the stories of youth youth from underserved backgrounds and the work that they do really doing these really intensive landscape analysis and really doing qualitative and quantitative work, but there's a lot of really good qualitative work for the voices of these folks that are impacted by the inequities in the educational systems are centered to the reports that they write that are key to their understandings. And, and then also their research about the context has become really important. So those steps that I talked about, about thinking about context and thinking about voices, they really make that key to the reports that they put out there. I think of my mentor, Paul Elam at Michigan Public Health Institute, who's done some really amazing work working with communities in Michigan around juvenile justice issues. And there again, it's led by folks that are from the community, they're writing the questions, they're um, discussing their experiences. And I've seen him take those findings and make policy changes and training changes in the juvenile justice system in Michigan. That, those reports, those voices, then get moved up the chain to judges and social workers and 
that the way that they're trained when they're working with these communities, the things that they look for, that the biases that they might hold when making a decision to take a child out of the home, Paul does that in an amazing way that both empowers those folks, but also really pushes folks in the community to stop and say, we're part of these disparities that we say we're studying because of the way we've been training people, the way that we've been talking about these issues. So I've been really impressed with his work. I think in the Latinx community, I think of David Garcia and Lisa Ponte Soto. They are folks who've done some health-related work and some work around sexuality and gender identity. And they are, to me, they're, they've been around for a while, but I think of them as emerging. I feel like more people are starting to see their work. So they think about the diversity within the Latinx community not just, you know, oh, they speak Spanish, so then everyone's kind of the same. But I think they've really pushed our discipline and really pushed the work to think differently about um, the folks within that community, those communities, and what their beliefs are and what their experiences are, even coming to this country in the first place. And I think that for me, some of the work that I do around culturally responsive evaluation, particularly in the healthcare setting, I have been using it more and more around education and training. So I mentioned that I was doing that poetic transcription project. I've done some other work as well with um, childhood obesity, a bit um, with adult obesity and bariatric surgery, where I've taken some of the work that I've done and then done workshops and trainings with students or providers who are across the continuum of him, whether it's a cancer continuum or the weight loss surgery continuum to talk about inclusive language, to talk about what are your policies around if someone's late for an appointment, do you just send them away or do you try to accommodate them? What are your policies around your care, case care managers and the kinds of questions they're asking people, thinking about context, right? So not everyone comes into a health experience with the same amount of capital, the same personal resources, the same kind of family support. So I've used my evaluation work to then say, well, what is it internally in our system about your policies that you can change to make someone have an easier time to travel through it? And so I think that the possibilities for using culturally responsive evaluation are, are endless. They can be national policy, they can be sort of building focus policy on a hospital or hospital system. They can be in schools. They can be in the way that we train our future professionals, whatever our disciplines are. I don't think there's a limit. And I don't think I've scratched the surface of the ways that I can even use it in healthcare. And so I, I'm, I'm still excited about learning and learning from other folks about how to use culturally responsive evaluation to make the system changes that I wanna see. Well, Dr. Johnson, I am grateful for the time and also <laughs> the work that you're doing. How do people keep up with you, the work, or if they wanna learn more about culturally responsive evaluation? Ooh, okay, there's all kinds of options. So if you wanna learn about culturally responsive evaluation, I would say spend some time looking at the CREA, the Culturally Responsive Evaluation and Assessment website. There's a lot of links to, um, their conference, they have a conference every year and then other conferences that do this work. 
American Evaluation Association, our big umbrella organization also is starting to do more of that work and do some workshops and lunch and learns and things like that. I, I will also say that there are journals associated with both of those organizations. So you can some, do some learning there. In addition to the AEA 365 blog, which has weeks where they'll highlight um, evaluators from different communities that are talking about how they're integrating culturally responsive evaluation in the African-American community or the indigenous community. If they wanna learn more from me, I, I, I am a business owner. I have my own uh, evaluation services, Estella Lucia Evaluation LLC. But I often work in partnership with Michigan Public Health Institute. They have a new center for culturally responsive engagement. And so I work in partnership with those folks to do workshops and trainings. And I also work a bit with Mirror Group, which is based out of Washington, DC, which is a women's owned African-American owned business. And um, I'm also just accessible as a faculty at Creighton. So folks that also reached out to me there as well. As an MPHI alum, you know that you're at a, a great place. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, Dr. Johnson, anything you want to leave the folks with? Any lingering thoughts? I would say if I had to leave a final thought with folks, I know that folks are often really intimidated about jumping into culturally responsive evaluation because they've been told that it takes a lot of time or it's a lot of work. But I would say it's worth it. Your evaluations will be more rigorous. They'll be more helpful to you and to the communities that you hope to help. And I would also suggest to folks to, that it's okay to start with baby steps. So if you're in a place where culturally responsive evaluation is new and you're just introducing it to folks with introducing them to CREA or the AEA or the ACE network, it's okay to start with, let's focus on one part of our process and then start to ramp it up. So if it's hiring or if it's the materials or if it's how you release the data after the fact, that's okay to start small. Just keep, keep going, don't stop. Keep failing forward if you have to, but it, there's a way to integrate this into your practice. There's a way to develop a trusting and supportive relationship with the community, but you have to work at it and they have to see you getting started. Big shout out to Dr. Johnson for hopping on the podcast. Um, shout out to Paul Elam. He was my supervisor in a previous role. Shout out to the Michigan Public Health Institute, who I like to always give credit for kind of building this this equity perspective for me. I think had I not made the career shift that I did when I did, I would have been the person that you hear on the microphone now. So definitely want to give just a, a small token of appreciation for those folks also want to give a shout out to those who participated in last week's equity matters social justice academy really exciting times i i think it couldn't have gone better you all know i'm a facilitator and it's there's often this like conflict for me between training and facilitation like i, I want to pull on people to share their experience just as much as I want to share the information that I have. And so what we did in an hour, I think, was really powerful. I'm excited for the next module that will be happening sometime this fall. 
date to be determined but definitely follow us on social media so that you can keep up with all of the latest updates that's at equity matters podcast on instagram at equity matters pc on twitter and we are also on facebook under equity matters podcast like us there sign up for the listserv just so that you stay in the know i promise not to scam you or to spam you um what else do we have coming up so next month is October we have new episodes we're going to wrap up this discussion around community engagement then we are going to transition into some some radical social work so really excited to to pick that apart you all know I'm a social worker so you're going to get social work episodes from time to time I'm also going to be joining the network for social work management um for an event around community engagement are you in or are you out more to come on that when i see the uh, registration information goes up i will definitely link it to our pages so that you can sign up if you are a member really excited to to engage in that conversation and i think my continuing education stuff picks back up in october also so i'll be back with the msu school of social work Got a few sessions lined up for the fall. Shout out to Shimon Cohen, who I know is kicking off his series with Michigan State University. So many exciting things to come. To all those folks out there who are starting the semester, definitely be safe, whether you're virtual or in person. Um, COVID's not over. The pandemic is not over. I don't know where people are getting their misinformation from these days, but definitely be mindful of the happenings around you. And so with that, folks, until you hear from me again, take care of yourselves. And of course, equity matters.